It's time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070, joined by Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Lots to talk about on the agenda today. Where shall we get started? I think the my uh, place to start uh, this morning would be uh, with respect to a claim made by a Mr. Eisler, who I think has a great background. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a fellow who was born on March 3rd, 1932. Uh, He's somebody who left school at age 14 and uh, began working as a farmer, then as a shepherd. For those of you of a certain age, you may recall uh, perhaps Fletch being the last guy I heard uh, indicating they had a he had a job as a shepherd. Then at uh, age 18, he moved into working in the oil field and eventually as a roughneck and a field superintendent. And then after a few years, he started his own uh, business, moved to B.C. and had a uh, business which he uh, incorporated to. Uh, do um, resource uh, uh, exploration. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so it went uh, for a number of years. Eventually, the company was successful. Uh, It went went public. Uh, But uh, sadly, uh, in uh, 2011, he had a dispute uh, with the board of directors of this company that he had uh, started uh, himself over uh, how money was to be raised for uh, further expansion. And the board of directors fired him. Uh, and uh, they didn't give any notice or pay him any anything in lieu of uh, notice. He was 79 years of age at the time he was uh, fired by the board of directors of the company that he uh, had started. And so he sued uh, the uh, company uh, for wrongful dismissal. Mm-hmm. And we've spoken before about how that uh, can play out. Um, and I think one of the elements of wrongful dismissal claims that is surprising to most people um, is that uh, an employer is actually permitted at any time uh, at common law to fire uh, an employee, just like the employee is free to quit if they don't like uh, working somewhere. Yes. But what somebody would be entitled to would be either notice of that or pay in lieu of notice. Uh, now, there can be some special circumstances that arise, including if somebody is in a union, they can actually have some special protection where they could Uh, even be reinstated into their job. Uh, And I think we've seen that uh, play out in a public way, for example, in the case of that conservation officer who refused the order to kill the bear. Um, He was actually ordered back into his employment, and that's an ongoing uh, issue in that case. Or the firefighter that we mentioned recently, but perhaps shouldn't get too far into. Yeah, that's right. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh, So that can happen in the union context, but if you're not in a, a union... Uh, ordinarily, what you're going to be entitled to would be uh, notice or pay in lieu of notice based on common law principles, uh, the bottom, the uh, floor of which would be uh, set out in the Employment Standards Act. But here, this is a good thing for people to be aware of, you can have circumstances like Mr. Eisler uh, happily did, uh, where he had a contract of employment which set out what is to be paid uh, in terms of notice or pay in lieu of notice uh, if he was uh, dismissed. And so uh, that's the upside. The bad side for Mr. Eisler is that very sadly, shortly before the uh, trial was to commence, he passed away. Hmm. Uh, But his estate carried on with the claim. The company then tried to uh, allege that he had engaged in uh, misconduct and they had cause to fire him. Uh, those claims were made, according to the Court of Appeal, late in the day after he had died. Perhaps the company thought, oh, hey, here's an opportunity to uh, explain away why we fired him. Uh, so uh, the uh, the ultimate outcome was that because uh, he had a 
uh, a contract that set out the terms of employment. Um, ultimately, uh, his estate was awarded some $72,000 in compensation uh, for uh, him being dismissed, having found that uh, the company's late in the day claims that he'd done things improperly uh, didn't have any merit. So I, I thought it was a good place to start. I liked it because not only do you have somebody who started as a shepherd and worked his way up to the uh, be the president of this successful company, uh, but it's also an example of how uh, somebody who's an employee can wind up with some additional protection if they have a, a contract in place that would set out what would happen uh, in the unfortunate uh, event that, that they are uh, fired. So a very successful life for Mr. Eisler, and it was, I must say, a, a nice read, uh, concluding that at the end of all that, uh, there was some recognition of uh, what he had done for many years uh, in establishing uh, uh, from the ground up uh, this uh, this company. So there it is. All right. Sure you've got an employment, comp- uh, employment contract uh, if you can negotiate one and you're not in a union. Absolutely. Uh, our next story is very interesting. A Vancouver police officer, it says here, makes a claim for $1.5 million with respect to injuries suffered in two car accidents. That was not the size of the damages awarded, though, Michael. Not even close. What happened? Not at all. And I must say, this is an example of uh, why there is just no substitute uh, for... Uh, having uh, trials in court and having witnesses uh, cross-examined. Uh, sometimes I think that's now thought of to be a, sort of an expensive uh, luxury as we see moves towards things like the uh, uh, no-fault system. Yes. But this case is a great example of how uh, having a proper trial in front of a judge who knows what they're doing uh, is a protection both for people who might be hurt, but also, I must say, for members of the uh, public, given that uh, ICBC is, of course, a publicly owned company. This case uh, involved a, a woman, Miss Joe Hall, or Constable Joe Hall, uh, who was a police officer uh, with the city of Vancouver. Um, and uh, indeed, uh, she made a claim for $1.5 million, claiming that she was very seriously injured as a result of uh, two uh, car accidents. Uh, but at trial... Uh, the uh, judge not only looked at uh, evidence, including um, physical evidence uh, uh, or sort of photographic evidence, sorry, of the vehicles involved. The judge uh, described uh, the damage from the first rear-end accident as uh, two or three barely visible scuff marks on the uh, bumper of the car, uh, and a similar description to the second um, uh, accident as being very minor. The first one involved a uh, 79-year-old retired taxi driver who he testified he rolled forward and bumped into the back of uh, the car being driven by the now police officer. Um, and uh, despite uh, that uh, physical evidence of there being very minor uh, damage caused, uh, the uh, now police officer testified that the accident uh, caused her to be in shock, uh, described as a big thud and crash, uh, and then claimed to have uh, suffered uh, ongoing pain uh, that uh, continued for years as a result of uh, these two apparently minor car accidents. Mm. Um, she was cross-examined, pointing out various things, including the fact uh, that when she applied for the Vancouver Police Department, uh, she indicated that she was physically fit, active, and able to work for long hours. That is, after the two uh, accidents occurred. Oh no! Uh, she said she passed her physical physical fitness assessment. Oh no! Police, 
Um, and so uh, it, uh, I think, became quite apparent to the judge after all of that that she was just uh, not to be relied upon. The other troubling aspect of this is that she uh, had uh, she called evidence from her uh, boyfriend, Prince, <laughs> who uh, testified in a way that uh, supported her claims. Uh, the judge rejected Prince's evidence. Uh, troublingly as well, Prince has also just been hired by the Vancouver Police Department and is set to start training on in May of this year. Hmm. Um, so there's a, uh, I guess there are a few la- layers to this. Um, first of all, uh, we're fortunate that there was a proper trial here, and she was effectively cross-examined, uh, and the judge was able to come to the conclusion uh, that the judge did about uh, these claims just not having merit. The, the judge uh, concluded ultimately that uh, both the plaintiff and her boyfriend were not to be believed, uh, rejected uh, the evidence that each of them gave, rejected uh, uh, the virtually all of what was being claimed. Uh, and the other significant impact of that as well is that when you've got somebody who uh, is working in that capacity, and, and indeed the recently hired uh, Prince, the boyfriend, um, I, I'm not quite sure how these uh, either of these two individuals can continue to or could function as uh, police officers in a circumstance where, or in any circumstance where they could be called upon uh, to testify in court, mm. right? You've got this finding by the uh, BC Supreme Court that they were unreliable, rejecting uh, the evidence that each of them uh, had uh, given. And you can imagine what uh, some future cross examination of either of these two people would look like if they were called upon to come to court and testify about a uh, criminal case that they might have uh, investigated. So uh, we're lucky as a public to have this process. Uh, you know, rather than paying out a million and a half uh, dollars, ultimately the judge awarded forty six thousand one hundred and thirty seven dollars, um, and uh, so the real uh, benefit to the public. And uh, here, uh, I suspect there's going to be uh, significant implications, not only in terms of that unsuccessful claim. Uh, but in terms of the uh, uh, capacity of these two people to function as police officers, given the uh, finding of the uh, trial judge that their uh, evidence wasn't to be believed or relied upon uh, at the trial. How does that work? And that's something that I'm honestly ignorant to. If a finding is made with respect to the credibility of a person by the court, can that be then referenced and relied upon in all future legal proceedings? That's really interesting. You can certainly imagine that they would be cross-examined about that, so you can imagine what that might do to their uh, credibility. Mm. Uh, There's also a requirement uh, now that the Crown disclose uh, the disciplinary history or relevant disciplinary history of police officers. Mm. So if you had a police officer who was, you know, uh, found to have conducted themselves improperly in a professional capacity, uh, that's going to be uh, disclosed to the defense as part of the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you can imagine what impact that might have uh, as well, right? But when you've got a person, like in this case, it's sort of this detailed description of all the various things that she had claimed and uh, detailed analysis as to why those things were not uh, to be uh, believed or relied upon, at least by this uh, trial judge, mm-hmm. uh, you can well imagine how that would seriously undermine uh, the uh, uh, person's credibility if they were showing up to testify about some other matter that was in any way uh, contentious. And so, uh, yes, you would certainly expect this to have some uh, future implication in terms of whether they're able to do that uh, do that job. 
I mean, think about that. If you just hired the person as a police officer who uh, just showed up in court and a judge found to have testified in a misleading and unreliable way, yes. uh, you know, you think, well, hold on, maybe that uh, <laughs> maybe that wasn't the best hire for a job that involves uh, honesty and coming to court and uh, testifying uh, truthfully about things that you saw and did. Indeed. I want to take a quick break. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally Speaking will continue in just a moment here on CFAX 1070. Legally Speaking continues here on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Had an opportunity recently, Michael, to have a conversation with the Attorney General of uh, British Columbia, David Eby, who is an extremely busy fellow these days among the files that he is currently working on are the housing issues here in Victoria, as well as ICBC, the proverbial dumpster fire, a term that he himself coined in popular parlance the civil resolution tribunal now this is a this is a change that you and others warned could come with potential complications you've any number of times i think very articulately and persuasively argued about how having an independent judge with both the experience dealing with the law as well as uh any number of other factors is necessary to have a just outcome in many cases civil resolution tribunal not always able to replicate that potentially. What are we seeing? Well, I must say this would be a, a decision that just came out from the B.C. Supreme Court that can be described as nothing but a terrible, awful, very bad day for the Civil Resolution Tribunal. Oh, dear. Uh, they, they've had a couple of those lately, uh, I suppose maybe in a different way a couple of weeks ago where the uh, Chief Justice found that uh, they didn't have jurisdiction to do some of the things the province had tried to delegate them. But the particular case that uh, just came out uh, involved a finding ultimately by the uh, judge reviewing a decision by the Civil Resolution Tribunal that involved ICBC. Uh, the judge concluded ultimately, given the above, I find that tribunal exercised its discretion arbitrarily and on the basis of predominantly irrelevant and or non-existent facts. That's not a good conclusion. <laughs> and or um, non-existent fact? Isn't, isn't a non-existent it, it, fact a false fact? Like what? That, that that would be the kindest way to describe that. Okay. And here here's the background, and it describe it uh, should give you some idea of why it's important to have uh, people who are well trained making these kind of decisions. Mm. The, the particular fact pattern involved a, a car accident that occurred back in 2017. Uh, there were two two drivers. The person who was the petitioner in this case claimed that he was stopped at a uh, pedestrian crossing when another vehicle hit him. The other vehicle driver claimed uh, that uh, this person was making a left-hand turn at the time of the collision. So just a factual dispute about how this car accident happened. Uh, but what happened is by process that's not transparent, ICBC decided to accept the version of events by driver number two, claiming that there was a left-hand turn being made rather than the person sitting uh, unmoving uh, at a pedestrian crossing. Hmm. The person who claimed that he wasn't moving and was parked uh, appealed the uh, decision that he was 100% responsible for the accident to the Civil Resolution Tribunal, uh, because that's how the legislation is set up now. That's where you have to go if you want to take issue with uh, an ICBC finding uh, in that regard. And the reason he was doing that uh, is that if you're found to be at fault for an accident, uh, your insurance premiums would go up, uh, and you would be required to pay a, a deductible to get your car fixed. So that's what he was concerned about. Hey, my rates are going up, right? I didn't cause this. He was trying to appeal it to the Civil Resolution Tribunal. Mm. 
the person who was the person who claimed it was a left-hand turn being made uh, was suing uh, for uh, damages, I guess, claiming he was injured or to fix his car, whatever it might be. Uh, and uh, so what happened is when the case got to the Civil Resolution Tribunal, the adjudicator there decided that uh, they weren't going to uh, hear the appeal by the man uh, who was saying that he was stopped and not moving. Uh, and they did so saying, oh, this will get sorted out uh, when the B.C. Supreme Court uh, case is uh, heard involving the person who claims it was left-hand turn who was suing for damages. Mm. Now, the reason why uh, that was simply uh, wrong uh, is this, and it involves a little bit of understanding as to how it works when somebody is uh, in a car accident and you're insured by ICBC. Mm-hmm. When you're in a car accident and somebody is suing, claiming for damages, hey, my back hurts, ICBC would appoint a lawyer to defend the claim. Uh, and once they've done that, that lawyers and ICBC are going to have conduct of how the uh, case is defended because ultimately at the end of the day, uh, it's going to be ICBC paying the other person uh, out if they are found to uh, have been injured or their car damaged, whatever it might be. Uh, and uh, the just fundamental misunderstanding that the adjudicator had in this case was that somehow that process would resolve the issue of uh, whether the person who says he was stopped was in fact stopped as he claimed. Yeah, because he would play no particular part uh, in that uh, trial for the injury claim made by the person who claimed that a left-hand turn was going on. Uh, in fact, it's not uncommon uh, for ICBC to say, uh, because they've determined somebody was 100% at fault, say, look, we're not even taking issue with who was at fault here. We're just here to discuss how much the uh, damage award should be. That was the case, for example, in the uh, decision we just talked about with the uh, now police officer who got uh, bumped into uh, on two occasions, right? Nobody took issue with the fact the car got bumped into from behind. It was just a matter of, is this a million and a half dollars in damages or $40,000, right? And the same was true in the case that the Civil Resolution Tribunal was dealing with. And so the adjudicator at the Civil Resolution Tribunal just fundamentally misunderstood how that case would proceed, what control, if any, this person would have over it, the person who claims he was stopped. Yes. Uh, and because he just completely misunderstood how all of that would proceed and what the person's role would be, uh, his decision was, and the judge ultimately concluded, just patently unreasonable. He just said a, uh, described it, a judge described it as a seemingly honest but mistaken understanding of civil procedure, insurance litigation, uh, and just what would happen uh, at the trial. The the eventual trial that might happen over the injury claim by the person who claimed he was turning left uh, is not going to resolve the uh, issue that the person who says he wasn't moving at all has with ICBC. His argument is, I didn't cause this accident. I'm not responsible for it. My rates shouldn't go up. Hmm. That is a very different issue from how much is the, uh, you know, how badly injured was the other uh, person who was involved in the accident? Yeah. That decision, which may be the only thing decided at trial, how much are they injured and how much compensation are they due, doesn't answer the question, who's responsible for the accident, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. And ICBC was, taking, ICBC was taking the position that 
the person who is complaining was entirely responsible for it. And so that's likely the position the lawyer is going to take come trial. There won't be a decision about who caused it. It'll just be about how much were you injured. Uh, and so the adjudicator in this case uh, at the Civil Resolution Tribunal uh, just had a complete misunderstanding about what was happening. Hmm. And so uh, that's where this case that just came out uh, arose. And the uh, judge who reviewed that uh, found that the decision of the adjudicator was patently unreasonable, which is a very high threshold. That's the statutory threshold uh, to have a uh, judge uh, overturn a decision of the Civil Resolution Tribunal, Yes, uh, a very high threshold. And so, indeed, uh, that's what was found to have occurred here. Um, interestingly, as well, the uh, judge ordered costs against the Civil Resolution Tribunal. That's not common with that kind of a body. Um, and so, uh, as I said, this, is, I think, can only fairly be described as a terrible, awful, very bad day uh, when you have a, a judge describing uh, the outcome of a quasi-judicial tribunal uh, as being uh, made on irrelevant, non-existent facts and with a mistaken understanding of how the uh, process uh, operates. Uh, and so it, it's an example of why uh, it, some of these things are uh, genuinely important, uh, and we really do need uh, a decision-maker who is fundamentally independent uh, of the parties. That's, I think, yeah. really at the core of all of this. You just should not have uh, people like this adjudicator who would be a contracted short-term employee uh, of the provincial government uh, deciding disputes involving uh, the government-owned insurance company. So yeah. one, one, more bad, one, one more bad one, <laughs> swing and a miss for the Civil Resolution Tribunal again. Uh, this week. Now, will this have implications in any other um, applications for judicial review with respect to the Civil Resolution Tribunal? Could this be referenced, or does it work that way? Well, I, I would certainly hope that the case would serve as a uh, reminder to people uh, in the Civil Resolution Tribunal of just how exactly these things work. Hmm. Uh, the There were previous decisions uh, that uh, the judge in this case uh, referenced that make clear that, that that issue as to who's responsible for the accident and should your insurance rates go up as a result, that's a dispute between uh, the insured and ICBC. Yeah. And it's a completely separate issue from uh, a claim being made by, uh, you know, another driver claiming that they were uh, injured. Uh, and the uh, resolution of that second, were you injured and if so, how badly, does not answer the question as to you know, who caused this and should your insurance rates go up? Uh, and that's important and it, it needs to be addressed. There needs to be some way to remedy it. And yeah. if uh, this decision stood, what you would effectively have is the person who claimed that he didn't cause the accident would have no remedy at all. He wouldn't participate in the trial about the person claiming he was injured. Yeah. The legislation says you can only go to the Civil Resolution Tribunal. And so he would just be stuck uh, with uh, uh, no ability to have that decision reviewed. So All right. Here we are. Let's go back and try again. All right. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking, here on CFAX 1070. Thanks so much. Until next week. Thank you. Stay safe. Have a great week. All right. Bye now.